Well, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. And last Lord's Day, Pastor Enro took us to the end of chapter 16, and so today we will begin to dive into chapter 17. Before we do, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather in your presence on this most holy day, where we seek your guidance and wisdom as we embark on this time of learning and reflection through your word, may your Holy Spirit illuminate the words spoken and heard, that they may resonate in our hearts and bring transformation. Grant us, Lord, attentive minds, open hearts, and a spirit of unity as we dwell, delve into your teachings. May we be drawn closer to you and equip us to live according to your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the time for Jesus and his disciples to part ways has finally arrived after their evening together. Jesus now faced with the imminent arrest by members of the Sanhedrin, must leave the upper room and make his way across the valley to an olive grove on the Mount of Olives. However, before he takes these next steps in his redemptive work, Jesus pauses to pray. And this prayer, often referred to as the high priestly prayer, covers the entirety of chapter 17 here in the Gospel of John. In this prayer, Jesus prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for all those who will believe in him in the time following his ascension. It's a farewell prayer that not only reveals aspects of his mission, but it also underscores the Father's desire to save those he has chosen and has given to the Son to redeem. And through this prayer, Jesus communicates his desire to bring glory to the Father above all else. Now, as we were approaching this chapter and this prayer, Andrew has suggested that maybe one of us ought to do an introduction first before we really get into the chapter. So when he said that, said that I immediately began to think of what I might do. It basically created an outline in my mind if that task were to fall on me. And then as I started reading chapter 17, I noticed that the points that I wish to highlight in my intro, essentially the same points that a person could highlight from the first five verses of this chapter. And so we're going to operate from the first five verses. Like I said, this is more of an intro. And Pastor Enro may come next week and do an intro part two. But let's read those words. This is John 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, as I mentioned, my original plan was to do mainly two things. One, to speak to the identity of the mediator. And then two, speak to how his identity, his nature relates to his mission. And yet, is this not what we see here in the first five verses we just read? 
Not only do we see the mission, that is, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, but we can also make inferences regarding Jesus' identity here. For notice that Jesus is distinct from the Father. He is given authority, and yet he is asked to be glorified in the Father's presence with the glory that he had with the Father before the world even existed. We would not be able to make sense of any of this apart from understanding the Trinity and the hypostatic union. And that, in turn, is necessary in order to understand the mission. And so I want to touch on some of these things today, especially as they are laid out for us in the larger catechism, since our standards do such a great job of laying these out so well and in an orderly fashion. As I was telling you, I even touched on some of this, I think, back in chapter 12. But today I want to elaborate even more on it. But first, let's discuss why there's even a need for any of this in the first place. A mediator, generally speaking, is somebody who functions as an arbitrator, playing the role of a reconciler to resolve conflicts and to unite offended parties. This individual acts as a go-between, if you will, in order to bring together parties that have been separated. In the Hebrew Bible, examples of mediation include Abraham acting as a mediator between God and Lot, Genesis 12, Moses mediating between God and Israel, Exodus 32, and the Levitical priesthood serving as a constant mediator between God and his covenant people. And in the New Testament, these Old Testament instances of mediation find fulfillment and are surpassed in the person of Jesus Christ. He serves as God's representative to humanity, the singular mediator between God and man. Jesus came to earth with the purpose of uniting two parties in an eternal bond and friendship. Again, is this not part of what we see here in these opening verses in John 17? Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And as Paul would emphasize to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Well, this all, raise, this all raises the question, why is this necessary? We say that a mediator is necessary in order to bring together two parties that are separated. Well, this implies that something went wrong. Something happened. Why the need for a mediator? Well, simply put, humanity exists in a state of fallenness, of rebellion, and of sinfulness. And our confession, again, since it does such a wonderful job of summarizing this, I just want to read it. Chapter 6. Our first parents, that is Adam and Eve, were, were back in the beginning in Genesis. Being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. And keep in mind, God is not punishing people just because they ate a fruit. That was a test. And this their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness in communion with God. 
and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And they, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed in the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, that's you and me, descending from them by ordinary generation. And from this original corruption, <coughs> whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. This corruption of nature during this life doth remain in those that are regenerated, and although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. Every sin, both original and actual, being a transgression of the righteous law of God, and contrary thereunto, doth in its own nature bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and the curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. Paul would put it this way in Romans 3, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Being under God's condemnation, we are separated from our Creator due to our sins, our rebellion. In addition to having a sinful nature, we have to grap grapple with an evil conscience, guilt, fear, and we harbor hostility toward God in our hearts. Consequently, for sinful men and women to find acceptance by God once more, a mediator becomes absolutely necessary. This mediator plays the crucial role in reconciling an angered God with a hostile and rebellious humanity. But not only does man harbor hatred for God, as indicated in Romans 1.30, there is also anger with God directed towards rebellious man. The Bible notes that God is continuously angry with the wicked. Psalm 7.11 says, God is a righteous judge and a judge who feels indignation every day. God hates wicked people. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Proverbs 15.9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. Proverbs 15.26, the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. In Proverbs 15.8, the sacrifice of the wicked, the worship, is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. In Proverbs 6, we read that God hates, among many things, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run evil, to run to evil. And in Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. 
God hates the thoughts, the deeds, the worship, and the desires of all evil people. And he hates the people themselves. Friends, do not buy into this nonsense you hear so often today that God hates the sin, but not, not the sinner. That is absolutely false. As if you can divide the person from his thoughts, his actions, and his deeds. His words. Psalm 7, I read verse 11, it goes on to say, If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and his own skull. His violence descends and on his own skull. In Psalm 145, verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. God isn't sending evil websites to hell. He sends evil people to hell behind those evil deeds, thoughts, and actions. God's disposition towards man has shifted away from the affection that we saw in the beginning in the garden. Therefore, the need for a mediator arises to appease God and to enable individuals to turn away from their sins and to turn towards God. The fundamental pre premise of the entire gospel hinges on the acknowledgement that God is angry with sinners and he requires appeasement, as expressed in Romans 1.18, where Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God does not have any favorable relationship with sinful humanity. Moreover, the gospel assumes that God is not compelled by any personal necessity to provide a mediator, nor is he obligated to do so. We read in Acts 17, verse 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Instead, God has acted voluntarily and sovereignly in his mercy and grace to offer his own son as our mediator. And this provision serves the purpose of reconciling sinful men and women to God and restoring them to the loving family of God. To reconcile fallen humanity with God's favor, the provision of a mediator is imperative given the nature of God himself. The transgressions of human sin have deeply offended and affronted all of God's glorious attributes, leading to a necessary repulsion on his part. The very essence of God stands in opposition to human sin, as every aspect of his being rejects it. Conversely, everything that sin embodies is in direct opposition to the holiness of God. 
Our sins invoke God's truth and faithfulness, placing them against the sinner. God has committed himself to mete out consequences for our sin, as evident in his warning to, to Adam about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a declaration that disobedience would result in death. God is unwavering and steadfast. He cannot and will not overlook, dismiss, or go against his spoken words. His commitment to truth prevents him from being untruthful, even to spare someone from the consequences of hell. God, being faithful and true, has promised the eternal lake of fire for those who persist in their love of sin. He has made an oath, and his word stands unbreakable. Those who engage in sin will face the consequences of eternal death. Furthermore, our sins have affronted God's justice, compelling him by righteousness and necessity to seek retribution and to administer appropriate punishment to the wrongdoer. And so if reconciliation between man and God is to occur, God's justice must find satisfaction through the punishment of human sin. The ultimate judge of all creation is committed to acting justly, and he must do so. We also see that man has revolted against God's righteous law. John would write in another letter, 1 John 3, 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And to rebel against God's law is to rebel against God himself, since his righteous and unchanging character is revealed in that law. Psalm 19, 7 through 11 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Consequently, God cannot tolerate sin in his universe without encouraging rebellion. It is imperative to uphold God's moral order and personal dignity at any cost because he is worthy of such. If God were to treat transgressions of his law lightly and disregard its rightful claim for the punishment of the wrongdoer, it would imply allowing the guilty to go unpunished. And this in turn would be a grave violation of dishonor to his own character as he's revealed in his law. Man's sin has also affronted God's holiness. The holiness of God perceives any form of unholiness as offensive, and he reacts with anger to eradicate it. Righteous indignation wells up within God against all instances of sin. He is stirred with opposition to sin and those who commit it. And his holiness deems any creature tainted by sin as an abomination in his sight. And this reaction is inherent and necessary. 
And so God in his flawless holiness actively works to eradicate all sin within his universe. We see it in the very beginning, immediately as the consequence of Adam's sin, God expels him from the garden and imposes a curse on both him and the earth. And due to this sin, God condemned Adam's descendants to death in hell, as we read in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The response of a holy God to sin is consistently severe. Psalm 5, 5 and 6 captures the sentiment well, stating that the foolish cannot stand in God's sight, and he detests all workers of iniquity. Those who speak lies will be destroyed, and the Lord will abhor those who are bloody and deceitful. And Paul says in Galatians 3.10, he reinforces this principle by declaring that anyone who fails to adhere to all the commandments in the book of the law is cursed. Hence, it becomes glaringly evident that a mediator is absolutely essential between God and man if we are to be rescued from eternal destruction. For man's salvation to be realized, this mediator must effectively eliminate our guilt, our pollution, and our hatred toward God. But not only that, he must reconcile us in a manner that respects and upholds all of God's perfections. This involves maintaining his faithfulness, satisfying his justice, silencing the demands of his broken law that calls for our punishment, turning away his anger, honoring his holiness, and preserving intact his government and moral order. And if God could not devise a way to save man while honoring these divine interests, the whole undertaking would be abandoned and the sinner would be left to face eternal doom. But thankfully in Christ Jesus, God's mercy found a way to accomplish this profound reconciliation. And in larger catechism, beginning with question 36, we read of the identity of this mediator, his nature and how, his nature relates to his mission. After reading that God did not leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery, into which they fell through Adam by the breach of the first covenant, commonly called the covenant of works, but of, but of his mere love and mercy delivereth his elect out of it and bringeth them into the estate of salvation by the second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. This question is, is then raised in question 36. Who is the mediator of this covenant of grace? And the answer is the only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God of one substance and equal with the father in the fullness of time became man. And so was and continues to be God and man in two entire and distinct natures and one person forever. Friends, the Bible unequivocally states that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the exclusive mediator between God and man. And he assumes this role for two fundamental reasons. One, he is the sole possessor of all the divinely appointed and prophesied attributes that were required of a mediator. And two, the anticipated time for the Messiah is foretold in the Old Testament has already transpired, hence the phrase fullness of time. 
If Christ is not the Messiah who has already arrived, then there is no expectation of another Messiah to come. And Jesus of Nazareth perfectly aligns with and completely realizes all the Old Testament predictions concerning the anticipated mediator from God. Consider his birth took place in Bethlehem as foretold in Micah 5.2. He was born of a virgin, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. John the Baptist served as his forerunner in accordance with Malachi 3.1. Jesus' genealogy meets the Old Testament criteria as he belongs to David's lineage, and we just read it in our scripture reading today. And it's also referenced in other various Old Testament scriptures. Furthermore, his teachings align with the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, as seen in Isaiah 61.1 and following. His miracles, his tenderness, his meekness also fulfill Old Testament predictions such as Isaiah 35.5 and following as well as Isaiah 42.3. In Isaiah 35.5 we read, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. We've not seen that in our Gospel of John, in our study. And in Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. It was prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures that he would make his entrance into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. In Zechariah 9.9. The prediction included details such as his betrayal as for foretold in Zechariah 11, 12 and following. His rejection, his being treated with contempt, aligning with Isaiah 53, 3. The scriptures further foresaw his death, Isaiah 53, 8. And the mockery he would endure in his final moments, Psalm 22, 8. Even specifics like being offered vinegar during his dying moments, Psalm 69, 21. And his demise alongside common criminals, Isaiah 53, 9, were also foretold. Additionally, the Hebrew scriptures anticipated his resurrection from the dead, Psalm 16, 9 and following. These prophecies also extended to reveal his dual nature. Both divine, Psalm 2, 7, Isaiah 9, 6, and human, again, Isaiah 9, 6. Listen to Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, there's the human nature, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name, this child that is born, his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Messiah was foreseen as both a priest and a sacrificial victim referenced in Psalm 110 and Isaiah 53. Furthermore, the Hebrew Scriptures described him as an outcast and a king, Psalm 2, Isaiah 53, destined to conquer all peoples as highlighted in Psalms 45 and 72. Additionally, Jesus of Nazareth emerged as the mediator Messiah in the fullness of time during which he lived. As emphasized in Galatians 4.4, 4, where Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The Old Testament's predicted Messiah must have already arrived because the designated time frame for his appearance has elapsed. As indicated in Daniel 9, 
His advent was expected to coincide with the existence of the second temple in Jerusalem, Haggai 2.6 and Malachi 3.1 and following. It was expected to coincide with the continuity of the Jewish state, Genesis 49.10. And even Jerusalem serving as the capital of the Jewish theocracy, again, Haggai 2.6 and following. And it's noteworthy that the second temple was destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman armies, leading to the cessation of the Jewish state. His arrival was foreseen to be accompanied by the cessation of Old Testament types and symbols in him, according to Daniel 9.27. And furthermore, his coming would be distinguished by the conversion of a large number of Gentiles to the religion of the Old Testament, as anticipated in Isaiah 2.3 and 42.1 and following. All of this was foretold in what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, all of it. Hundreds and hundreds of years before the man, Christ Jesus, ever showed up. Hundreds of years before we ever receive a, quote, New Testament. Is it any surprise then at all that Jesus would tell a crowd of unbelieving Jews that Abraham saw his day and rejoiced? Is it any surprise then that Jesus did not have to accuse a group of unbelieving Jews for not believing in his word because they already stood accused by not believing Moses on whom they had set their hope, even though Moses wrote of the mediator? How in the world can anyone claim to have believed God and understood the scriptures and believed his word, yet fail to recognize the very person whom those scriptures revealed and came from? And there he is standing right in front of their noses. And why do we have Christians today trying to argue that Christ rejecting Jews and Bible believing Christians serve the same God? Even John MacArthur is saying it in an interview with Ben Shapiro, who mocks Christ on his Twitter feed. As if the Old Testament revealed one religion and the New Testament reveals a different religion. Friends, that is complete hogwash. This entire book reveals one religion. It is a Christian book from page one to the end of Revelation. Paul, writing to those in Ephesus, states emphatically that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Anyone who acclaims some sort of biblical Judaism apart from Christ, whether it be now or in the days of Moses, are frauds who have imagined their own religion and their own God, and they have projected those lies onto this book. This is why you'll never hear me talk about the Judeo-Christian ethic. It's the Christian ethic. That's it. This is a Christian book from Genesis on forward, period. In Christ is the consummation of all the covenants of promise which God made with his people beginning with Adam and Eve immediately after the fall. 
And he, who being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire and distinct natures in one person forever. Jesus exists as both fully God and fully man within a single person forever. Our shorter catechism states God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. Question 21. <clears throat> the second person of the Trinity took on a human nature, resulting in a divine human person known as Jesus. And this truth is encapsulated in words we have already seen in this gospel in the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, identified as the Son of God and equal to God, assumed a complete human identity involving personality, intellect, soul, and body alongside his unchanged divine essence and perfections. When we affirm that the divine nature of Jesus is of one substance with God and his human nature is of one substance with man, we are asserting that from the moment of his conception, Jesus was genuinely and authentically a human being. He possessed all the characteristics of humanity, making him entirely human. Simultaneously, he possessed all the perfections of God as God's perfections define him, rendering Jesus truly and completely God. Every attribute applicable to God can be ascribed to Jesus. And likewise, every characteristic of humanity can be attributed to him with the sole exception that he was and remains sinless. The, uh, the Council of Chalcedon in AD 41 asserts that two, the two natures within Christ, his deity and his humanity, are joined together, quote, indivisibly and inseparably, unquote. Without implying that one transformed into the other or became confused with it. And even though these two natures coexist in one person, each nature maintains its distinct properties and perfections. If Jesus, as our mediator, was to be successful in saving us from our sin, it was absolutely necessary that he be both fully God and fully man. And our larger catechism is going to explain for us why this needs to be. First, consider his divinity. Why was it required that the mediator should be God? One, his divine nature prevented his humanity from succumbing to oblivion beneath the overwhelming and boundless wrath of God and the grip of death. The intensity of God's wrath carries such an infinite magnitude that any ordinary human relying on their own strength would be incapable of enduring it. However, when human nature is united with the divine nature, as we see in the case of Jesus, his human nature would not collapse under the weight of such wrath. For if it were to collapse, it would imply that the divine person failed in the crucial task undertaken with his human nature and would be a dishonor to him. Secondly, his divine nature bestowed infinite worth 
and everlasting efficacy upon his redemptive work on our behalf as a human. If the mediator were solely human, even if sinless and despite perfect actions and sufferings, being a finite creation, nothing he accomplished would possess the infinite value demanded by God's justice. The price paid for the redemption of God's people from sin and to secure God's favor must be of such a magnitude that it guarantees the preservation of God, of the glory of God's justice, which can only be achieved through an infinite price. The mediator must fulfill all the requirements of God's law in a manner that fully honors God's law. Hence, the demanded obedience must not only be sinless, but also of infinite worth. And the same applies to his intercession on our, on our behalf. Third, in his divine capacity, Jesus had the ability to bestow his Holy Spirit upon his people. If Christ, as the eternal Son of God, did not possess a nature equivalent to the deity of the third person of the Trinity, he would have been incapable of sending the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit exclusively obeys God. It is only God who could declare regarding the Spirit, quote, if I depart, I will send him unto you. John 16, 7. Fourth, only in the form of Almighty God incarnate could our mediator triumph over all our adversaries, eliminating anything that obstructs his name, interest, and glory. These adversaries include sin, Satan, the world, and death. Sin and opposition to the holiness of God is the source of all opposition against him, whether on hell or in hell or on, on, on earth. It seeks to diminish his glory, challenge his sovereignty, and tarnish all his perfections. And so Christ must subdue sin. And since victories over sin, Satan, and the world, and death demand boundless power, it is absolutely imperative that the conqueror be a divine person. And fifth, for Christ to lead his chosen people to eternal salvation, it is essential that he be God. We need to be prepared for heaven, guided to heaven, and ultimately welcomed into heaven. And this is why Jesus is referred to as the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, 2. And since this entire process is genuinely divine in nature, the one who accomplishes it must be a divine person. Six, it is crucial that our mediator, Jesus Christ, is God because the eternal joy of his people hinges on their communion with him. Jesus not only initiates our everlasting joy, but is its very essence. Our joy is not just as a result of his actions, but is actually found in him and in his presence. He is the source of our blessedness. In, in order to be the source, it is necessary for him to be both God and man. And then seventh, Jesus, our mediator, needed to be God in order to live, even in death, and to bestow life upon those who were deceased. No ordinary human has the cap capability to willingly surrender their life in death and then reclaim it. Ask Lazarus. Christ, in his sovereignty, made the choice to be obedient unto death. 
He explicitly declared, as we have already seen in this gospel, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. No mere man can say those words. And so our mediator must be fully God if we are to be reconciled to God. But while maintaining his full divinity, possessing of all the attributes that define God, Jesus simultaneously exists as a genuine man, possessing all the characteristics that define humanity. Jesus possesses a tangible, physical body. body. He engaged in meals with his disciples, Luke 24, 43. He invited them to touch his resurrected body, John 20, 27. He affirmed a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have, Luke 24. And as we have already seen in this gospel, Jesus has a created material and human body that could be heard, seen, and touched. Again, John would write in his other letter, 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. As a fully human being, Jesus has a rational soul. He was not a hybrid. He was not half man and half God. He wasn't a mere physical shell lacking inner human spiritual life, but he was authentically and holy man, both internally and externally. He expressed emotion, saying, my, my soul is sorrowful, Matthew 26, 38. On the cross, he declared, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Luke 23, 46. And during his childhood, he, quote, increased in wisdom and stature, Luke 2, verse 52, signifying growth in his intellect in his physicality. Jesus was, was neither distant or aloof or governed by unbridled emotional passions. He exuded warmth. He exhibited a personal demeanor and maintained complete emotional control. However, the fact that he underwent the entire spectrum of human emotions underscores his genuine humanity. He felt compassion, Matthew 20, verse 34. He could sigh from the bottom of his heart, Mark 8, 12. He could express a mixture of anger and sorrow, John 13, 20. And he experienced intense anger and righteous indignation in the face of sin against God, Matthew 20, verse 24. As we have already seen in this gospel, when Jesus approached the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, he wept with irrepressible anger, filled with a profound agitation of his whole being and burning with rage against the oppressor of men. He knew agony and he felt distressed and despondent, Matthew 26, 37. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 say, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In order to serve as our Savior, Jesus, the Son of God, fully aligned himself with our humanity. 
entailing the adoption of flesh and blood, along with all the emotions, sensitivities, and vulnerabilities. Through this incarnation, he became thoroughly qualified to be our high priest in our substitute offering, diverting God's wrath from us. Representation and substitution necessitate identification and his complete identification with our fallen humanity yet without sin is what enabled him to help us completely and entirely the larger catechism question 39 gives us reasons for why the mediator must be man so let's briefly consider those one it was essential for the mediator to be human in order to elevate our nature the highest honor and dignity to which human nature can be elevated is to be united inseparably with the second person of the Trinity. Two, it was essential for the mediator to be human in order, quote, to fulfill the obedience to the law, Galatians 4.4. This obedience was absolutely required to meet the obligations of God's law concerning the sinners whom Christ represented. The law not only required punishment for sin, but also insisted on perfect obedience from humanity. Hence, the obedience of the mediator had to be carried out by a human. Third, it was crucial for the mediator to be human, quote, in order to make intercession for us in our nature. Hebrews 2, 14, 7, 24, and 25. God does not engage in intercession as it involves worship and implies dependence which is in, incompatible with God's self-sufficiency and independence. Intercession involves prayer, and only humans pray. Hence, Christ's ability to intercede for us is made possible by and is the necessary outcome of his incarnation. And fourth, it was necessary for the mediator to be human in order to have a fellow feeling that is sympathy for our infirmities. Again, Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. While being the omniscient God, the mediator possesses perfect knowledge of our weaknesses, but not an experiential knowledge of them. Only a human being can truly experience weaknesses in their life, including passions and emotions. Therefore, if the mediator had not been a human being with the capacity to undergo such experiences, he would not have been able to sympathize with us and our weaknesses. Fifth, it was essential for the mediator to be human so that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness to the throne of grace. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, Paul emphasizes that the Son of God took on human form to redeem his people, granting them the privilege of receiving the adoption of sons. In Hebrews 4.16 further, further instructs us that due to Christ's humanity, we can boldly come to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy. And then six, as it was man who had transgressed against God, it was therefore imperative for man to endure the spiritual and physical consequences of that sin. The necessity for the mediator to be human was rooted in the requirement to undergo death specifically a human death, the kind demanded by the transgressor. The mediator had to possess flesh and blood to offer his life on the sacrificial altar 
satisfying divine justice and averting God's wrath. Throughout the Old Testament era, the places of worship dedicated to God were marked by the shedding of blood, symbolized by the typical blood of bulls and goats. The mediator's humanity was crucial to provide the blood that is demanded by outraged justice and a violated law. And so ultimately the mediator needed to be human to undergo the act of dying. All of this was required by a mediator. We were ever to be reconciled to God. And yet how amazing and beautiful it is that all of this comes together in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The humanity of Jesus never had an independent existence or personality. Instead, from the moment he was conceived in Mary's womb, it was joined with the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. This un union is intimate, eternal, and inseparable. Yet the two natures, human and divine, remain distinct without confusion, each retaining its unique characteristics and perfections. As our confession states, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. In the womb of a virgin, the divine person of the Son of God embraced our humanity, fulfilling the, pro the proclamation that the Word became flesh, John 1.14. And to state that the Word became flesh does not imply that the second person of the Trinity ceased to be God. Rather, it signifies that this person came to possess human characteristics alongside his unchanged divine perfections in nature. God became man in Christ, not by transforming himself into a man, but by uniting himself with the nature of man. In the incarnation of Christ, the union of the divine person with human nature constituted a single person described as very God and very man, yet one Christ. Our Confession of Faith, chapter 8. Jesus did not exhibit any signs of schizophrenia. His unified personality remained intact, even in death. And during the period between his death and resurrection, which, which we looked at in some detail a couple weeks ago, even though his physical body and his human soul were separated, they remained united with his divine nature. And so whether it was in the manger or in the cross or on, in the tomb or at the resurrection, there always existed the God-man. And this union of the divine and human in Christ serves as the fundamental and essential basis for our salvation. The success of everything the mediator had to achieve hinges on it. The concise definition of the incarnation of Christ in the Shorter Catechism states, Christ, this is question 22, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Although the term incarnation is not explicitly found in the Bible, the concept is present throughout the Bible. The word incarnation is derived from the Latin incarne, equivalent to the Greek phrase insarche, which means in the flesh, which appears several times 
in the New Testament. In particular, John 1.14 affirms that the Word became flesh. That is, the Word, or Logos, in Greek, identified as God, yet distinct from God, is the one who created everything, possesses and is the source of all life, and is the source of light and knowledge. The Word is the self-expression of God, namely the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And flesh refers to man's actual physical substance and created human life on earth. The incarnation involved the Word becoming a man without ceasing to be the Word. And in his flesh, we, quote, beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, John 1.14. As a man, Jesus possessed a fully human nature, spiritually and physically, without losing his full deity. The incarnation was an addition. It was not a subtraction. And when God, the Son, took on our humanity, he retained all of his deity and did not empty himself of it to become man. To effectively fulfill his role as mediator. Furthermore, Jesus Christ was and remains entirely free from sin. He is unequivocally the Holy One of God, John 6, 69. Having, quote, done no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, First Peter 2.22. In him there is no sin, 1 John 3.5. And in Hebrews 7.26, he is described as holy, guiltless, undefiled, separated from sinners. And despite being tempted at all points like as we are, he navigated these trials yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without blemish to God, Hebrews 9.14. His, sin, his sinlessness was essential for him to serve as our Savior, as only one without sin could atone for the sins of others and bear the penalty of death on their behalf. And according to the larger catechism, question 40, the necessity for the mediator to be both God and man in one person lies in the fact that the distinct actions of each nature can be accepted by God on our behalf and relied upon us as the actions of the entire person. If Jesus had existed as two separate persons instead of two natures within one person, neither would have been qualified to act as a mediator. And so it was imperative for him to possess both human and divine natures. A human had to pay the price for our sin. And only God could infer infinite value and complete efficacy upon that mediator's sacrifice. The human nature was responsible for actions such as subjecting self to the law of God, obedience and suffering, none of which God would perform. While the divine nature imparted limitless worth and dignity to these actions through its union with the human nature. And as a result of this union, the obedience carried out by our mediator in his humanity held equivalent value as if it had been conducted in his divine nature. Hence, we have scriptures like Acts 20, 28, where it says, the church of God, which he, that is God, purchased with his own blood. The two natures in Christ remain distinct, yet, they do, yet with no merging and blending between them. The human nature does not become divine, 
and the divine nature does not become human. However, the Bible attributes both human characteristics and divine perfections to the one person of Christ, including mortality and immortality, weakness and omnipotence, dependence and independence. The properties of each nature belong to the person of Christ and are therefore ascribed to him. Christ as one person is described as almighty, omniscient, omnipresent, as well as a man of sorrows with limited knowledge and power and subject to human misery. Again, it is crucial to note that the divine nature cannot experience human weaknesses and the human nature cannot partake in the perfections of God. Nevertheless, Christ can be described in this manner because he is both God and man in one person. The person of Christ who is God obediently suffered and died while the person of Christ who is human paid an infinite price to satisfy God's justice. It's important to clarify that we're not asserting that the divine nature in Christ obeyed, suffered, and died, or that his human nature earned eternal salvation. Rather, it is the person in whom the divine and nature are united who accomplished both of these things. If we're to be restored to God, the actions of each nature in Christ must be recognized by God as the actions of the entire person. If only the human nature and not the person of Christ has engaged in obedience and suffering, these acts would not have possessed the infinite value to appease God's justice. It is the combination of his human nature with his deity within his singular divine human person that gives adequate worth and honor upon his works enabling the reconciliation between us and God. Moreover, we are to place our trust in the actions of each aspect of Christ's nature, considering them as the deeds of the entire one person. And this reliance involves worship and ador adoration, implying that our mediator is God and not just merely a man. Well, I know that was a lot to throw at you, but I hope that in detailing the identity of the mediator and how his nature relates to his mission, as we go on in this chapter, in chapter 17, and we hear Jesus' prayer as high priest, that we can hear it now with a proper framework in which to interpret these words and we will recognize the depth and the significance of what he prays. Because everything that I've gone through is going to come out in this prayer. Believe it or not. It's either explicit or implicit. I'm just drawing it out. All of this will come into play for in Christ, heaven and earth meet and are reconciled. And so the primary call for you today is simple. Believe Christ. Flee to him. Run to him. And recognize that faith in him is also faith in God the Father who sent the Son. This belief is absolutely essential for your salvation and your transformation. There is no salvation outside of this. Period. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, 
in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray.